Brandon, for sharing your gift with us and um, playing the piano during our offertory time. I want to invite you this morning, if you have your copy of the Word of God, to open up to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. The message this morning is entitled, "Where Where Does Our Help Come From? Where Does Our Help Come From? So our text this morning will be chapters 5 and 6. If you found your place, say amen. Okay, before we read, let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, it's my prayer that you would teach us according to your word. Lord, even as the song that was just played is here we are to worship. Here we are to bow down. Here we are to say that you are our God. And so, Lord, we confess this morning. We praise you. We confess that you are God. And, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and comprehend your word. Lord, that you would uh, attach our wills to yours, that we would walk according to your word. And, Father, that you would move us this morning by your word by the power of your word. And so, Lord, help us to see, help us to understand, help us, God, to love your word and to submit ourselves to your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Where does our help come from? I think that might have been, or perhaps it was a, a question that was very likely that the children of Israel were asking here in Ezra chapter 5 or just before Ezra chapter 5, I think the children of Israel were possibly asking a question such as this, where will our help come from? From where will the deliverance that we need come from? When will we be able to finish and accomplish the work that God has called us here to do? In chapter 4, we were introduced to a people who had lost hope. They had lost faith in God. Their vigor and their tenacity in following God had quickly waned. And while they had resettled in the land of Judah and and in Jerusalem, they had run into hard opposition from the people that were there in the land. They were running into hard opposition as they were trying to carry out the efforts to rebuild the temple. And as they encountered this opposition, they lost sight of the top priority for them. That which was their top priority in rebuilding the temple of God as they came back in to the land that God had called them to. Their faith had grown weak and it was affecting every area of their lives. In fact, in Ezra chapter 4 verse 4, it tells us that the the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. Last or two weeks ago, we noted that this word discourage, it literally means to weaken the hands. <clears throat> and in direct proportion to their weakening faith in God was their weakening ability to engage in the work God had called them to. The challenge they faced was the same, really, that we face today when we grow weak in our faith. Perhaps some of us, like the people of Israel, have grown complacent in our walk with the Lord. 
And we too have all but lost sight of the joy of daily walking with Christ. Maybe you've lost sight of the big picture that God desires to work through you to reach others for himself and for his glory. Or or maybe we've lost sight of that role that we know, we know that we know that God had called us to in serving him. That thing which we were so excited about at one point and there was such great joy in our walk in serving the Lord. Or maybe you've lost sight of that role that he specifically has gifted you for in ministering to others. We ended chapter 4 a few weeks back asking ourselves the question, is there something hindering our faith walk in Christ? Is there something in our lives that's weakening our hands, much like the people of the land weakening the hands of the children of Israel Is there something discouraging us or even frightening us from living out our faith? Is there something hindering us from accomplishing the work that God has called us to? And so then I I ask us to consider one question, returning to chapter 1, verse 1 and 1, verse 5. What is it that God had stirred our spirit to do for him? like he had stirred the king and like he had stirred the the fathers and the leaders of the households and the priest. What what is it that God had stirred our spirit to do for him? Is there something God has stirred our spirit to do for him that we have suppressed or perhaps that we've lost sight of it for various reasons? Well, between the end of chapter 4, verse 24, and the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, is a span of about 16 years. And so for 16 years, the work on the temple had stopped and the temple had laid desolate, laid in ruins. There was no progress being made. But we read in chapter 5, as we seek to answer this question, where does our help come from? Beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtel and Jeshua the son of Josadak arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them supporting them. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the province, beyond the river, and Shethar Boznai and their colleagues came to them and spoke to them. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then he told them according to what the names of the men were who were reconstructing this building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come from Darius and a written reply returning Concerning it. Now, in verses 6 through 17 is this letter that goes from the governor, Tatanai, and the, uh, the leaders and his colleagues, the officials of the province. And then in chapter 6, from verse 1 all the way through verse 12, is the reply from King Darius. And we'll cover all of this in a moment, but I, I want us to skip down to verse 15 of chapter 6. Verse 15 of chapter 6. It says, this temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. 
And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Then, verse 19, the exiles observed the Passover in the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the purity of the nations of the land joined them. They joined to seek the Lord God of Israel and they ate the Passover. And then verse 22 says this. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So what happens here in chapter 5 and chapter 6 is that the work of the house of the Lord God of Israel is completed. It's completely rebuilt and restored. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is this, that God's eye is upon His people. God's eye is upon His people. I want us to focus for a minute on that phrase in verse 5 of chapter 5. It says, but the eye of God, their, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. This is an answer, really, in in, in direct contrast to what we see at the end of chapter 4 in verse 24. At the end of chapter 4, verse 24, it said that the work of the Lord was stopped. Or the work of the house of God was stopped. Chapter 4, verse 24. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius. And we notice that in verses 1 and 2 here of chapter 5, that God raises up two prophets by the name of Haggai and Zechariah. And these prophets come to the people of God, and they begin to minister to the people of God by His Word. They had a message that God had given them to come and to speak to the people of Israel. And so as we see God's eye on His people, I want us to understand and see that God used the bold proclamation of His Word to call His people to action. God used the bold proclamation of His Word to call His people to action. In verses 1 and 2, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied, right? And then, Well, in verse 1, and then look at what it says in verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, excuse me, arose and began to rebuild the house of God. The point that the narrative is making is it is that the prophets, when they delivered God's word to the people, it ignited a fire that called them to action. When the prophets stood up and began to speak the word of God before the children of Israel, it was that speaking of the word of God that ignited a fire within the people of God and they they were called to action. How do I know this? Well, we, we have insight 
into the message of Haggai and Zechariah. If we look at the end of the Old Testament, you see the books of Haggai and Zechariah. And we've highlighted those a little bit before. But this insight, we, we have insight concerning Zechariah and his prophecy to Zerubbabel and to Jeshua in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 Concerning working on rebuilding the temple, Zechariah says this, Then he said to me, the Lord, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How is it that God is going to see, or that the people of Israel, where will the hub come from? How is it they're going to see the temple rebuilt? Zechariah prophesies and says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 14, the prophet Haggai says it very similarly. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And listen to what happened. They came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So it says in verse 2, right? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose. And they began to rebuild the house of God. You see what's happening here? It is that the prophets delivered messages to the people of Israel as they're there, as they're living out their lives. And when the prophets came and delivered a word, when God's word was spoken among the people God takes his spirit and places it upon his people and he he stirs their spirit and he causes them to begin to work for his name and for his glory. We see that the prophets delivered messages of rebuke. But not only did they deliver a message of rebuke, they also delivered a message of promise. They delivered a message of rebuke because the people had really grown complacent in their worship of God. In fact, again, we can be informed by Haggai chapter 1. In Haggai chapter 1 verse 4, Haggai says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Their complacency had led really to their great impoverishment. In Haggai 1.9 it says this, You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on the ground that brings forth on man and beast, and on all their labors. You see, what had happened for the children of Israel is their lack of faith had led them to suffer defeat and to live in defeat, even to the point of questioning God's leading. And you know what it took? It took the proclamation of God's word to stir up their spirits to action. And what I want to submit to us today is this, that as God's people today, we are not exempt from this very tendency to grow complacent in our relationship with God, both personally and corporately as a church. And when this happens, we too, listen, by God's grace, will experience the rebuking by God's word that we need to experience and hear.
fact, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle Paul says it this way, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What happens for us, what happens when we are rebuked by the Word of God as the children of God? Well, the goal is that it would help to make us complete and equipped for every good work as we submit ourselves to God's Word but it's not all only about being rebuked by God's word. Certainly not. There's, there's hope and there's joy and there's promise. In fact, part of not only was there rebuking for the people of God, but there was also promise for the people of God by the prophets and their message. In fact, the ESV study Bible sums it up well in a listing of the key themes in the front of the book of Zechariah. And so if you want to write down page 1750, Later, you can go and reference those key themes, the the promise and um, the message that Zechariah had for the people of Israel. But just to share a few of those promises of hope. The book of Zechariah, he speaks about the future expansion and blessings of Jerusalem in in chapter 2. And he speaks about the complete and permanent removal of the sin of the people in chapters 3 and 5. Zechariah prophesies of the return of the divine warrior to terrorize Israel's foes in chapter 9. And he prophesies of the coming branch, a Davidic ruler who will save his people and cleanse their sins and establish peace. He prophesies of the pouring out of God's spirit, resulting in repentance and the opening of the fountain for the cleansing of sin in chapter 12. And he prophesies of the final triumph of the Lord over the nations in chapter 14. You see, God not only brought a message of rebuke to challenge the people where they were and to call them out of their complacency, calling them into action, but God also, through his word, brought a promise. He brought hope for his people. And so while they're certainly rebuked by the prophets, there was also hope and promise, promise of something which is better to come, much more to come. I want us to see the outcome of God's word among his people. And so as we scan through chapter five here, when when God's work took center stage in their lives, here's what happened. God's work became the priority. When God's word took center stage in the lives of his people, the work of God, God's work became their priority and they began working and and working to finish the temple. We know this because in verse eight, it, it tells us that there was a report that went from the governing authorities to King Darius. And in the report, they report and say, we, we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones. And this work is going on with great care and succeeding in their hands. They had begun obeying the word of God through the prophets. Chapter 9 and 10 report to us that they came and approached them and and had questions asking the elders who issued this decree in verse 10. They also asked the names of all those who were in part of the doing and doing the work and, and, and engaging and rebuilding. And in verse 11, their answer signifies 
the assuredness of the people of Israel that God's eye is upon them. He says in verse 11, they answered, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth and are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished In verse 12, verse 12 shows us the confession and the repentant hearts of the people matched with a desire to live faithfully after God in verse 12. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. You see what had happened for the people of Israel. They had taken ownership of the sins of their fathers. And and inherent in this verse is the understanding that they are doing things differently than their fathers had done. And it's also inherent that God's refining of his people had accomplished exactly what he had intended because they had come to a place of repentance. They had come to a place of confession and and wanting to follow God. Verses 13 through 17 just walk through the rest of the letter and simply it, it, it just recovers the decree of King Cyrus that he had issued a decree for the children of Israel to be able to rebuild the temple and the return of the utensils that were used in worshiping God. And I I think we can learn from the contrast of the narrative between chapter 4 and chapter 5. I think we can learn that there's a distinction and a distinct difference for the children of Israel and ought to be for you and I. And it's this, that knowing God's word and following God's word are two very different matters. Knowing God's word and following God's word are two very different matters with very different ramifications. Chapter four shows us the work has stopped because they they knew what God had called them to do, but they weren't living obediently following what God had called them to do. But chapter five shows us as they hear the word, they begin to live out the word. They begin to engage in doing the work and following God. Like the people of Israel, we need to see this this morning. We need to see that keeping God's word at the center of our lives will call us to action as well. Keeping God's word in the center of our lives calls us to action. I think if we're not careful, we could stretch the application of this narrative and this principle too far this morning. But we need to be aware that living as disciples of Christ means we must possess a healthy understanding that God has chosen to reveal himself to us preeminently through the person of Jesus Christ, but also through his word. And so we would say that we cannot know the will of God, nor the ways of God, nor the character of God, If we do not know the word of God. Maybe that's a negative way to put it, but a positive way to put it would be to say this. In order to know the will of God, the ways of God and the character of God, we must know the word of God. You see, for the children of Israel, the word of God had to take center stage in their lives. And when the word of God took center stage, they began to engage and live and do the work of God, the work that God had called them to. 
I just want to ask us the question this morning, is that where we're at? We have purpose to make God's word central in our lives. That is, we hear the preaching and teaching of God's word and and we, we, we engage in studying God's word that we are submitting ourselves and our lives to the very truth of God's word. I want to submit to you that if we're going to know the will of God and know the way of God and know the character of God, we must know the word of God. As God's people, it's important that we know his word, that it be center stage in our lives. So we see that God's eye is on his people. Chapter five, verse five, and we walk through what's happening And in chapter 6, I want us to see, secondly, that God supplies for His people. God supplies for His people. God's eyes are upon His people, and God supplies for His people. And so the first thing is that God is the source of their success. God is the source of their success. Now, I want to jump to the end in verse 22. And we'll kind of use verse 22 to show us what's happening in all of chapter 6. Verse 22 says, The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them. The Lord had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them, toward the people of Israel. You see, God is the source of their success. Even if we look back to chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 5, that God stirred the spirit of Cyrus, the king, to issue a decree when he conquered Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And then in chapter 1, verse 5, he had stirred the spirit of the father's households and of the priests and of the Levites and of all the people that they would come and they would follow him. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, we we have the decree of, of Cyrus just being recovered. They, they make a search and ask Darius to do a search and find and uh, find the decree of Cyrus. And so Darius does a search and recovers this decree of Cyrus. And of course, it, it highlights for us that God himself is the one who put this decree in place and put it into the heart of the king, a foreign pagan king. In chapter 6, verses 6 through 12, Darius affirms, reaffirms Cyrus's decree. And so in verses 6 and 7, he tells the governors and the authorities, he says, let them work, leave them alone. And in verse 8, God provides for the work from the royal treasury of the nation and from the taxes of the provinces all beyond the river. And then he tells them to do this without delay. Verse 9. Provision of the sacrificial animals. We see, then we ask those, chapter 6, verse 9. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, and lambs, for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priest in Jerusalem requested, it is to be given to them daily, without fail. You see how God is providing? God is the one who is the source of their success in, in rebuilding the temple and reinstituting the worship of him. Verse 10, the king says, pray for me and the life of my life and the life of my sons. In verse 12 of chapter 6, he, he gives a decree that this decree would be carried out with all diligence. In, chapter, in verse 13, it says that 
Tatanai and Shephar uh, Boznai and their colleagues carried out the work with all diligence. And then in verse 15 of chapter 6, it says that the temple was completed. Look at verse 15. This temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, why do we run through all that so quickly? I want us to catch a glimpse and to see how God is the source of their success, how God is underwriting it all. Undoubtedly, this has all been by the orchestrating hand of God. God has sovereignly orchestrated the events leading up to the completion of the temple. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be too quick to turn a blind eye that while God certainly orchestrates events, He also chooses to use people in accomplishing His work. He chooses to use people to accomplish the work that He wants to be done. And so in verse 14, it says the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes of Persia. You see where the credit's being given here for the work that's being done through the people as they follow him and are led by God. Though it's a subtle point, I think we need to see that God is the source of their success, but he uses his people to accomplish his work. God is the source of their success, but he uses his people to accomplish their work or his work. This is an important truth for us to grapple with. God has gifted each of his people uniquely to serve in his kingdom. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, for, uh, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And again, in, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Paul writes, Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And each of us, each of us, has an equally important role in the body of Christ. Success is determined by living faithfully according to God's will. Success is determined by living faithfully according to God's will and according to God's gifting in our lives. That is the measure of success. And so God is the source of their success. And I want us to hear that, that while God is the source of their success, He uses His people to accomplish His work. As we see God supplying for his people, we also see that God, God is also the source of their strength. Not only is God the source of their success, but he's also the source of their strength. And in verse 22, <clears throat> it says that he had turned the heart of the king of Syria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This word for encourage them, it is the word that is opposite of what we saw in chapter 4, verse 4. The word to encourage them literally means to strengthen their hands. And so it says that he turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them, to strengthen their hands. We noted that back in chapter 4, verse 4, 
The people of the land discouraged. They weakened the hands of the people of Judah. But now we see that the Lord, the God of Israel, is strengthening the hands of the people. Now the opposite is true. God is the source of their strength. And there is not discouragement happening. Rather, He is strengthening them. So in chapter 5, verse 2, it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. I love the way it says that in verse 2. At the end, it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. It's the picture of the prophets standing beside the people as they're engaging and building the temple and rebuilding the temple and constructing it. And they're, they're standing there alongside of them and among them as the work is going on and as it's happening. In chapter 5, verse 8, we've already, we've already noted this verse, but it bears repeating that the work was being noticed by the governing authorities. The work was going well. It was going with great care. They were making great progress quickly, and it was catching note of the, the governing authorities of the province. In chapter 6, verse 14, we see <clears throat> the elders of the Jews being successful in building through Uh, through the prophesying of the prophets, and they completed the temple. I want to maybe highlight one other thought here, and that is that, you know, it, it took great effort. It took great effort for the people of God to come together and to complete the work on the temple. It was hard work. And I can imagine even physically draining for those, those three or four years as they were working on it day after day, trying to complete it. But remember, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, God was truly sustaining them. God was truly sustaining His people. Earlier this week, I was meditating on a scripture. Uh, I was meditating on John chapter 13, verse 34, just during a time of personal study. And it says, a, a, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. Now, as, medit- as I was meditating on that passage, I, I began asking the question, how did Jesus show love? What, what did it look like? Daily for him. What did it look like for Jesus to show love to the outcast, to the tax collector? I mean, what did, it, it looked different, I know, but what, what did it look like? And the answers to these questions ultimately led me to begin contemplating the life and the interaction of Christ with his disciples during the time that isn't recorded for us in the gospel accounts. And I began thinking, all right, so, so what was Jesus like in the times that we don't have him recorded in the gospel. What was he like interacting with his disciples during those times? And of course, we can't know that. But I, I came to the conclusion that because, as Colossians 2 9 says, the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ in bodily form, that he must have been the same as he was with his disciples when he wasn't, when it wasn't recorded for us, that there would not have been really any change. And that what we see in the gospel accounts is what we would see in the whole of his life. And I finally arrived at a place of confession. And my confession was this, Lord, it's hard work. It's hard work denying the flesh. 
And I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but I get weary and tired of this battle in the flesh. I get weary and tired of seeing the profuse presence of my sin. It's ever before me, and I know that it's ever before God. And as I was wrestling deeply with this issue, I mean, I was wrestling with this, and the Lord directed my mind to John 15, 5. And in John 15, 5, the Holy Spirit, as it quickened me, this truth was there. Jesus tells his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The answer is abide. Abide in me. For the children of Israel, as they struggle, as they need to know the strength that God supplies. For me, it was I needed to know the strength that God supplies. You see, God is the source of their strength, but he calls his people to a life of dependency on him. For you and I daily, as we walk with Christ, as we live out this walk and this faith walk, we must depend upon God. We must depend upon him And the children of Israel learn that. They learn that through this process that God is a source of their strength, but He also calls them to a life of dependency on Him. They they must depend upon Him. The question I would ask us this morning is, are we depending upon Him? Are we abiding in the vine who is Christ? Is He the source of our strength? But not only was... God, the source of their strength. He was also the source of their joy. God is the source of their joy. We see that in chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. And the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They celebrated with joy. Verse 22 tells us, and they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Listen, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice. You see, God supplies for his people. God supplies even the joy. God is their source of joy. And so as they observe the feast with joy and And they came before God and the Lord caused them to rejoice in their worship. They come and they dedicate the temple with joy. They bring sacrifices and they do all of it with joy. Verse 17 tells us of all the sacrifices that they offered. Then it says, 12 male goats for a sin offering corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel That is, they're bringing these sacrifices and the dedication of the temple and desiring, desiring to worship the Lord. And as they do, they come and they offer this sin offering before God. These 12 12 male goats are this sin offering. It's this offering of confession and repentance and making atonement for their sin. And for the people of Israel, this is a new beginning. It represents a starting over. It's a new beginning for God's people. And so in verses 19 through 21, we see that they they then celebrated the Passover meal. 
And so they offer the sin offering and then they come and they they celebrate the Passover meal. One commentary shares those five reasons why the Passover was significant. And I think they're important for us to mention here. I included them in your notes there so you wouldn't have to try to write them down feverishly as I walk through them. The first one is that the Passover speaks of the saving presence of God. That's what the Passover was about. That's why the lamb was sacrificed. It spoke about the saving presence of God for the children of Israel when they were in Exodus, uh, when they were in Egypt and God was bringing them out through the Exodus. It was the slaying of the lamb and the blood spilled that was their saving uh, pres- that was God's saving hand upon them and provision for them. And so the Passover speaks of God's saving presence. Secondly, The death of the spotless lamb, the shedding of its blood, is a means of life for those who belong to the community. It was the community of faith, the children of Israel, that shed this spotless lamb's blood and put it over the doors of their house. And in so doing, it allowed them, the firstborn of their children, it allowed them to live and not perish under the wrath and the discipline of God. Thirdly, Community ties are strengthened by the eating of the body. And this certainly was the case for the children of Israel. As they would eat and partake of the lamb, there was to be nothing left over. They would eat it together and it would signify a unity and strengthen the ties as the covenant people of God. Fourth, the Passover celebrates a past event which is also a present reality. And how true that was for the people of Israel As they celebrate this Passover, they're looking back to what has happened in coming out of Egypt, but also for them in coming out of captivity in Babylon. And now they're back in this place, the land that they didn't think they would be back in. Not only are they back there, but the temple has been reconstructed and now they're able to go and to worship God freely. And so the Passover celebrates this past event, but also a present reality. And fifthly, that confidence is created concerning the future because God has overcome the enemy. And so it celebrates God's overcoming of the enemy. It celebrates that God has been victorious in delivering his people and that they serve a God who has delivered them. But lastly, I want to make mention of as they partook of the Passover meal, look who was involved in partaking of the Passover meal. In verse 21, the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel, they ate the Passover. And so they came together and not only was it the sons of Israel that partook of the Passover, but also all the people of the land who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations because they wanted to seek the God of Israel and they wanted to live a part of this covenant community. So what I want us to see is that God is the source of their joy. And listen, and he entreats his people to new life in him. God is the source of their joy And he entreats his people to new life in him. The partaking or celebrating of Passover. It was the celebration of life for the people of Israel. And this morning. I want to ask us a couple of questions to consider. 
are we are we joyfully coming before God and worshiping him because of the success that we have in in participating with him in the mission that he has called us to do? Are we able to joyfully celebrate worshiping God because of the strength that God has supplied and our dependency upon him to walk with him and to live and to work according to his good purpose? And are we able to joyfully celebrate in worshiping God because he is the source of our new life and our hope? This morning, we're going to celebrate in a moment this very meal that was instituted by Passover. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning in verse 26, we have the Lord's Supper. But just before that, Jesus was sitting around a table with his disciples and they were gathered there to celebrate the Passover meal. And Jesus takes this Passover meal and he commemorates it and uses it to signify what he is about to do, and to draw this bridge between the sacrifice that would provide life and himself being the very sacrifice that would provide life. And these five important aspects of the Passover carry over into today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. And so as the priest here and Ezra chapter 6 would purify themselves and make certain they were ready to, to come before and worship God. I want to challenge us this morning for a moment to purify our hearts and our minds, our hands, as we come before the Lord to worship Him through celebration of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a song. And during that time, I want to encourage you just to spend time meditating before the Lord and cleansing your heart, confessing maybe things that need to be confessed before him. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you that the answer to the question, where does our help come from, is it comes from you. You are the one who supplies all things. You supply all that is needed that your children would walk with you and follow you. And thank you, God, ultimately, that you have given us the great deposit of your Holy Spirit in our lives. That you would lead us and direct us. That you would teach us your word and your counsel as we study your word. And so, Lord, this morning, as we come before the table, I pray that you would help us to be mindful. of Having clean hands and a pure heart. Of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.